All right, uh, dear listeners, here we are, uh, another uh, B-side bonus episode of Pod Like a Hole. This is the show where we, every season, pick an artist that uh, your three co-hosts, Mark, Steve, Eric, were crazy about, and we uh, dig in to the entire discography and all related uh, history and materials. Um, season one was Nine Inch Nails, season two is David Bowie. And as we wrap up this season, uh, in a perfect little bit of happenstance, uh, the illustrious uh, line of books uh, called 33 and a Third that always captures the backstory on some of the most important albums to come out in history um, released their newest edition. And uh, I believe, and our, our guest today can tell me if I'm off on this, I believe it's number 143. Um, and it is a, a collection of um, uh, the backstory to Diamond Dogs. And it was written by Glenn Pendler. Shortly, Glenn, it's really nice to have you today. Nice to be here. Yeah, did I have that right? Are you like one number 143? One, number 143 is what it says on the side, so it must be true. Fantastic, fantastic, and um, it makes me feel I, makes me feel less than unique. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you you are you are in there with you know Neutral Milk Hotel, Bob Dylan. You know the Clash and DC Talk, so you should you should feel you know you should feel pretty proud there. <laughs> well, I, I will I will say that having a, uh, a book cover that says Diamond Dogs by Glenn Hendler sort of fulfills a dream I never knew I had. So <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, um, yeah. So I and I and I'm you know I love the thirty three and a third books. I I think I first noticed them. I don't know how far back they go, but it was like early aughts, and I had gotten I had gotten the low book. Um, and, and after that, yeah, I got a neutral milk hotel and a, and a couple other ones over the years. And it's just a really fun, like, you know, every, every author has a different approach to how they do it. And, uh, you certainly do. I noticed a few things I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about, about your approach to, to this one. Um, but I guess like, uh, you know, give us a little, uh, background on kind of what you do and how that led to to writing your volume of 33 and a third. So um, <laughs> nothing I do would logically lead me to uh, write a 33 and a third because I'm basically a, I'm, I'm mostly a professor of 19th century American literature, um, but I'm also a lifelong Bowie fan and someone who started out really wanting to write about popular culture. When I was, uh, I started, you know, my undergraduate honors thesis was about Blade Runner. Uh, I was really a, a film and sort of 1970s dystopia, um, 1970s, early 80s dystopia fan. Um, circumstances took me for a very long time to become an English professor and uh, to study 19th century American literature, but I always kept my love for Bowie and for uh, music of the 70s in, in general. And then uh, it's really, I sort of fantasized, as soon as I saw those 33 and a thirds, I fantasized about writing one, um, but never really took that idea seriously until one day, this is one of those weird coincidence stories, but one day I was sitting on a plane on the way to an academic conference and I looked at the person next to me who was reading much more interesting stuff than I was. And she was reading all these uh, stuff, all these things about music. And so I struck up a conversation and it turned out to be the editor of the 33 and a third series. Uh, and oh. <laughs> sheer coincidence. Um, she politely asked me as she probably does everybody who's, who, who, uh, who strikes up a conversation with her, you know, what, what I would write about. And I said, oh, probably Ziggy Stardust or Diamond Dogs. And she said, oh, we only have this one book on low. Um, we'd be interested. So I said, great. Didn't do it for another two years. She was no longer editor. It was, uh, it was a whole different set of editors. Um, but I finally pulled it together to... Um, to write a, and it was after Bowie died, um, to write a proposal and it got accepted. I mean, there's more to it than that, but um, it took a few drafts and things like that, but that was the basic story. 
Nice. So fate would be the short you're, answer. Uh, you're 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 phoning in from the from the East Coast, uh, right? Are you? Yeah, uh, I'm right here in Manhattan. Are you? Are you at liberty to say what what school you're a professor at? Yes. <laughs> you don't have to keep it secret now. I uh, <laughs> I am uh, <laughs> I'm a professor of English and of American studies at Fordham in uh, Manhattan and the Bronx. So Diamond Dogs is out. It's great. I uh, I was able to get a uh, Steve and I were able to get the uh, the kind of Kindle version of it, and um, and I tore through that in the, over the last couple weeks. Um, and I, I'm curious, you mentioned Ziggy, you mentioned Diamond Dogs. What, do you have your own uh, kind of Bowie history as far as becoming a fan of the music? Oh yeah, um, well, um, I, I'm, I, I'm older than you are, I suspect. I became, <laughs> I became a fan uh, when I was about 11 or 12. I mean, one of my best friends um, played me David Live. I must have been 12, that's when it came out. Um, and I just I just loved it and started buying, that was actually the first person I bought albums by, started buying all these albums and asking for them for Christmas and things like that. Um, so I became a fan really quickly. The, the, as I describe in the book, the thing that really hooked me because it really puzzled me was watching this broadcast on NBC, late night, um, this late night show called Midnight Special. And Bowie took over one episode of it Call, and called it the 1980 Floor Show. Um, it had been filmed in uh, 73, but I saw it in 74. It was Bowie's first performance on American television, and it was the craziest thing ever. He changed his costume every, um, it was a late Ziggy sort of performance, um, and he changed his costume every song. He was, uh, you know, did a duet of I Got You Babe with Marianne Faithful. Um, it was it was really crazy and really um, just opened my mind to the idea that music and pop music could be um, really different from anything I'd seen before. Um, so that totally hooked me, and I've been a you know, pretty continuous Bowie fan ever since. Saw him in concert in the 70s, in the 80s, and then in the aughts, I guess is what it would be. Um, and uh, and uh, wish I'd seen him more. I somehow imagined that he would keep playing and being alive forever, and that I would always have the chance to see him. So I missed a couple of opportunities, but um, but always loved him. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I mean, I, I think 12, 13 is a great age to get into Bowie. That's when I got into him. It just happened mm -hmm. to be... 95 <laughs> when, when I was when I was at that age but um but yeah but luckily because of that I was you know I've been able to see him a few times as well and you and you uh you re like uh you put yourself into the book a little bit maybe a little bit more than than say like the low book um, yeah it's not it's not I'm not going to call it a personal memoir or anything but you know it's clear that that floor show really made a uh the floor show really made a difference for you, and, and I remember you you're you're kind of talking about that, and then definitely towards the end you kind of you 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 kind of pull yourself into it a little bit more too, which I appreciate. It makes it kind of a at, at moments a personal a personal read. So, hey Eric, can you can you hear me? I can. Hey Steve. Hey, good. So Glenn, thanks for coming on. Oh, I pleasure, pleasure. Aside all the uh, the the three ring circus that my life is right now for a moment. <laughs> you, um, you've got a baby, I understand. Yeah, baby, and I have a, you know, since the baby was born, I didn't even factor in that our 4.5-year-old is starting pre-TK, they call it. Uh -huh. And uh, so basically, I become the, uh, the the TK parent. My wife's the infant parent. And uh, uh, now now with the kids doing distance learning, there's all this, uh, I got to set up a Chromebook. I got to do all this. It's like having another job. It's fine. Um, but I, I, I was going to say that, uh, yeah, Eric, I actually, when I, 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 I almost – finished the book. Eric, you did finish it, correct? Yeah, I got through it uh, uh, this morning, actually. Yeah. Good, good man. Um, what I did, but I, what I do like is, yeah, you know, you can read through these, uh, these, these 33 and third books and a lot of them can kind of be like, you're just looking up a Wikipedia page, but it goes into more details. And Glenn, I think uh, having it come from a more personal point of view is a great approach. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks. I enjoyed it. I the way, enjoyed the way it. I learned, the way I learned about the book and I contacted you, was that I think it's worth mentioning on this podcast a billion times. We've mentioned the website pushing ahead the dame and that gentleman was tweeting about these uh, Mike Garson listening parties that the uh, artist from the band, the charlatans uh, was putting on. I, I am blanking on his name. 
Tim. Um, what, what is his name? It's Tim, Tim Burgess, I believe. I think I think that's it, Tim Burgess. Name. Yeah, and he got, he's been getting, since quarantine started, he's been getting a hold of artists. In this case, he got a hold of Mike Garson, or Mike put this thing on, and Mike Garson heard about it. And they'll play an album, and artists that were involved in these albums will just tweet about it. And um, he's done some Pixies. He's done some David Bowie. He's done, like, I don't know, probably Big Audio, Audio Dynamite. I don't know. I think, you know, he's, a, he's from across the pond. I don't know what's going on over there half the time. Um, but, yeah, definitely uh, the Diamond Dogs episode. I saw your tweets, and I, that's how I learned of your book. And uh, we appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, just Diamond Dogs. So thanks a lot. My pleasure. My pleasure. And yeah, that, that, that uh, Twitter listening party was a lot of fun. I got in touch with, as soon as I saw he was doing it, I got in touch with Mike Garson and he, uh, he, I, he asked me to send him a copy of the book, which I did. And um, awesome. he, he even generously tweeted about it himself. So I don't think he read, he, he said he'd started reading it, but um, I haven't heard from him since. Maybe he hated the rest of it, but he, uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, I... he said nice things at the end. Yeah, Mike, Mike Garson, we decided just last night we were talking about him. And he's definitely an artist that all of us knew about growing up. But uh, after going through all these records, you realize how much of a important integral part he played to a lot of the records he was on. And at first blush, you might just think, oh, yeah, he's the guy that kind of gets avant-garde on the, uh, the piano. But when you look at all the records he's on, he really, on many tracks, uh, is kind of uh, the, the connective tissue, I think. He, conne and, uh, he, connects, your, yeah. he connects your two artists, too, right? Because he played with Nine Inch Nails, too, right? Exactly. That's, prob that's where we first heard of him, yeah. so... Yeah, but I mean, on uh, on uh, I, I, on Diamond Dogs, I guess the part that always jumps out to me that he really stands out on is uh, would it be Candidate? What's the uh, there's yeah yeah some epic epic piano during that suite. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but <laughs> anyhow, it's mixed real low, but it's really crazy and great. A, a lot of it, um, a lot yeah. of it's hard to hear at first, but then you realize that he is just playing his heart out. So, uh, so one just kind of, sorry, Steve, did you have something you want to say there? No, Eric, I want you to kind of lead the show here. Yeah, that's fine. Here, uh, I'll, I'll do color commentary. <laughs> um, so just kind of digging into the book a little bit. Um, you know, one thing that first came to light when we were reviewing this, was this is one of the first times he was messing around with the cut up lyric technique. Mm -hmm. and uh, that he got from uh, William S. Burroughs. And um, that's actually come up a few times as we've uh, kind of dug into some industrial music. It's a, that's a huge influence on the, the like kind of musical pastiche of industrial where you're cutting up little samples and place them where they don't belong. And then, and then when we got into this, came up again with Bowie's lyrical writing. And I, I, I suspect I have a, a friend in this with you, Glenn, but I'm always looking for thematic connection even if it doesn't exist but i feel like you went kind there's a there's a there's a certain way you kind of went with that approach and how you did your chapters to this book because <laughs> it doesn't go it doesn't go in the order the song this, your your review of the songs don't doesn't necessarily go chapter by chapter as it appears on the album it kind of bounces around as to like what makes sense with the theme and like one theme at the end of one chapter kind of leads into your next chapter yeah, based on that, am I crazy, or were no, you on to something? <laughs> no, that's a that's a good description of it. It does it does sort of jump from theme to not jump from theme to theme. A theme that comes up in one chapter will will then organize the next chapter. Um, I I kind of thought of the idea of uh, of uh, of really doing cut up for the book, and then uh, decided that would make for a bad book, but that I wouldn't do it well. But uh, but it does um, it do, it does do some not quite free association, but definitely some association um and uh and the the um the burroughs method is really crucial to bowie's lyric writing and certain songs more than uh, certain songs more than others on this album um and as i describe in the book he had this um you know direct encounter with burroughs as just as he was starting the recording of the album he did this inter joint interview with burroughs for rolling stone magazine and that's um really i mean it's it's interesting because there's there's some Many people have said that he did cut up writing before Diamond Dogs, but from what I've read, from what I could, from what I could tell, um, he didn't really know much about William Burroughs even until um, until this interview. He did just getting a Diamond Dogs. So that's when it became a really influence. But then it continued as an influence throughout his life. Yeah. The uh, um, so my my critique when we did the episode was that there was a. Uh, you know, that it seemed like he had a few ideas 
and just kind of crammed. It, it just felt, it, it didn't feel fully realized. Like he, a few ideas that were loosely related to post-apocalyptic storytelling uh, or dystopian, mm -hmm. sorry, more like dystopian storytelling. And, uh, and you know, and then try to pass it off as a concept album. And I think that was a little reductive. And you, I really appreciate your ability to make every song on there fit into that pastiche. Cause I couldn't, Yeah, I couldn't. It, Eric, I, I, Eric, I gotta say, uh, you know, you typically are our uh, uh, concept album guy and meaning of the lyrics guy. And you do a pretty good job, uh, but no, Glenn puts you to shame in the book. And <laughs> I, I, I do think that, yeah, if you just look at the song titles, you might be like, oh yeah, okay. I guess he kind of had something going on here and he abandoned it. But no, you bring up a, a few good points where uh, I think specifically the, the one that struck me was uh, the song We Are the Dead, <laughs> how you were able to connect that to 1984. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. I didn't even catch that. So well, the connection to 1984 is right there in the title. It's the connection to Burroughs. That's on, you know, that's sort of in the 1984 section of the album. But that that it's it's a very cut up uh, song lyrically and musically. It's it's the two parts of it really don't fit together um, in any logical way. And then there's all this imagery that's about do dogs defecating ecstasy. That's not uh, not at all Orwell like. Um, so I think it is one of the songs where he ended up trying to make connections. I don't think you were wrong to say that it's three different concepts sort of uncomfortably glued together. But I think he did some work. Um, I think he did some work to make the connections. Uh, maybe I, I, I give him some credit for that. Um, and then partly I'd say, you know, I, I may have overdone it in some ways too. I think I, I think I work really hard to it's sort of a thought experiment. Like I'm going to see what happens if I view this as a really coherent album. Um, and I made it out to be very, you know, that pretty coherent. Um, and I think it's, I think it's probably, it's pretty messy. just more coherent than people make it out to be. Um, oh, I, that's, that's my whole mission statement. You should hear the story I tried to weave for Ziggy Stardust. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trying to make that. Did, did, did you ever read his attempt to, to tell William Burroughs the story of Ziggy Stardust? It's uh, it's in that interview. Oh, yeah. You do gloss over it in the book. Uh, why don't you regale us with the the the, oh, the, the I'm overview of it? I'm not sure I can remember all the details because it's so crazy and has so little to do with the songs. But there are these creatures from outer space called the Infinites who are coming to Earth and speaking through Ziggy. Um, and he gives them names that sound to me like they're out of William Burroughs' novels, not out of his own. Um, his own imagery and he's he's like he, it's it's fascinating in the interview because he's sort of trying to tell the story of Ziggy Stardust in a way that makes it interesting to William Burroughs um, and uh, so he makes it sound <laughs> like William Burroughs. That's funny. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah one thing that that as far as the connect connecting things uh, that that was probably my biggest eye-opener that you that you pointed out was for me, uh, rock and roll with you I, is my like low point in the album. I am not a fan of that song. I mean, it's very, it's a very fine rock song, you know, but it has nothing to do with what I like about Bowie. And, um, and uh, the fact that you kind of connect it to, ah, no, it's like a propaganda song for a fascist. It's, it's him and his initial like, like fascist ideations where he's, you know, basically like, it's a, literally an experiment for him to try to manipulate the emotions of his crowd. And uh, I thought that when you wrote that, I was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to say, I learned, I sort of figured that all along, along the way. It's along the way. It's not as if, I mean, I will say that that for me was the low point of the album too, for years. Uh, I thought it was like, a, a pretty good Elton John song, basically. It's sort of a piano ballad huh. with, with a bunch of belting, uh, you know, belting lyrics. And he, he does, um, he does carry off the singing, really. It's got great singing. Um, uh, and uh, it's got great piano chords that are pretty much the same chords from the beginning, at least, of Stand By Me. Um, and it's, uh, it's a nice, it's the pleasant little pastiche of a song. Um, but then he used to say in concerts, and I started watching all the clips I could find of, um, of the Diamond Dogs tour, which there aren't very many of, unfortunately, as we probably know. Very, yeah, that, that tour seems to be one that I've tried to find uh, clips of it, and I, I, I just got excited. I believe the, 
like the with the cracked actor with the with the skull kind right. of Shakespearean thing wasn't that that started in the Diamond Dogs yes. tour I think yep and that was like the first half of the Diamond Dogs tour maybe I don't know if they kept doing it after they transitioned it into that like Philly Dogs tour I don't know that whole chronology very well but yeah I, I had a lot of trouble finding anything live um, there's very little I mean there's yeah. some, there's there's some clips in that in that documentary called Cracked Actor. Right. Um, we all, and we watched, we watched that one. That's, that one's crazy. That's a yeah. crazy documentary. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> totally yeah. crazy. Um, yeah. And the, um, the person who ostensibly directed that one from the, who's a bigwig at the BBC now says that um, they recorded much more of the concerts, um, but doesn't, but has never said where, they, where that recording is. Um, and yes, they did keep doing the, um, the, the, singing to a skull and cracked actor um through the rest of the tour they got rid of the sets um and and all the sort of all the really elaborate and the dancers and all the elaborate stuff but they did keep that set piece um but i forgot the original question sorry <laughs> there was a question there wasn't there oh no i don't remember i don't know but what what uh <laughs> what uh what tours have you seen him on um, so the first time I saw him was on the Station to Station Isolar tour, um, which was spectacular. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And I went, I, I, um, I went with these three junior high school friends, um, my friend who introduced me to Bowie and, and two other friends. And we, uh, like, we sat behind the stage and we were, um, you know, we were really terrible seats in the New Haven Coliseum, which has since been, since been blown up, actually. There's some great footage of it being blown up. But, uh, but, it was, uh, but it was this old, it was this hockey rink, basically. We were behind the stage, and yet it was incredibly compelling. He's got such charisma, and he did, even he did then, um, that it felt like we were, uh, you know, practically on the stage with him. Um, and he showed- That's awesome. Instead of, uh, instead of an opening band, um, first, he played a, the latest Kraftwerk album because he wanted us all to hear Kraftwerk. Uh, as, yeah. as he should, as he should. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's good taste. Good taste. Uh, that's very, that's a very David Bowie thing. There is like you have a. Actually, I can really appreciate that, Glenn, because uh, Eric's accused me over the years of telling people to, if I really like an album, I'm gonna you know try to get you to listen to it. And Eric always said it was like, uh oh, Steve is saying it's time to eat your vegetables. So <laughs> I can appreciate if I had a auditorium of people locked in there. I would definitely make him listen to one of my favorite albums. That's he just, awesome. He played nearly the whole thing. And then he showed um, this classic surrealist film, A Chandelou, um, The uh, Indelusion Dog, directed by Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That's the one with the, uh, the sliced up eyeballs, right? That's, that's the one, yes. Uh, there's a Pixies song about that, right? Um, and he, I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a movie Bowie made. Um, I sort of thought the main actor looked like Bowie, and then the slicing eyeball thing happened, and I was completely freaked out. It was just another example of him just exposing his fans to um, avant-garde art uh, in a way that was uh, that was, was eye-opening and mind-blowing. Well, that's, a, that's, that, hilarious, that's an incredible Glenn, tour. That's an incredible the, tour. Um, that's, uh, Eric, who's become the, the born-again rivet-head industrial nerd in his old age, um, <laughs> Eric, isn't Slicing Eyeballs that website you always send me stuff from? Yeah, Slicing Up Eyeballs. They collect all the good post-punk, new wave, industrial news. They're great. Gotham. And I, I told, I, I specifically told Eric, I was like, I don't like the name of this website. He said it was from Pretty good. Well, I, you know, I tell you, I would like, you know, I, what I don't want to do is everything you discuss in the book because I do want people to read it. Um, but I have to say that, like, you really made, uh, when we discussed the episode, I think I was highest on Diamond Dogs. All of us liked it, but well, I, I think you really, I mean, obviously you wrote a book about it. You really, you really take it to the next level there. And I, I one thing I would like your opinion on, I feel like it definitely is unfairly 
it's it's underrated. It's definitely I think it's definitive of underrated. I think it's got a lot of great songs on it, and it's the only David Bowie album I believe where he plays the majority of the guitar. And I just think it's very special. Why why do you think possibly it is kind of pardon the term the dyed rooster headed stepchild of his catalog? It doesn't <laughs> get the respect I think it deserves. Well, I'm, some of it is the production, which is really muddy and weird. Um, I think that's deliberate in many ways, but it's it's a hard album to to hear in some ways because it's so with the mixing and the and the production level. He did, you know, he 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 did make so much of the so many of the sounds himself, right? He played um, three different guitars on some songs, plus the sax on the same song, plus did the singing, um, and then took pieces of tape from uh, of people playing of you know, great musicians playing uh, guitar. I think sorry, not guitar, but bass and drums um and so it's it's really a constructed thing that he did out of physical magnetic tape um and he brought these uh he brought these tapes partially mixed to um tony visconti's house in london um and he said what can i make of this because i can't i can't mix it um and visconti had great equipment and was able to make it make an album out of it. so it's part of it is the production values part of Part of what makes it hard to listen to is that it's so diverse in its sound, right? I mean, it goes from, you know, sort of disco of 1984, which basically is a disco tune, to um, what I think is kind of a prog rock tune, like uh, Big Brother, uh, to um, Stones-style rock and Diamond Dogs and Rebel Rebel, to some kind of weird decadent cabaret music in uh sweet thing candidate um so it's so diverse it's hard to pin down sure you got this great hit from it um and then the other problem i think is that they that they <laughs> they released the wrong song as the second single right rebel rebel was a big hit and then they tried to make diamond dogs a hit and it's it's a great song in its way but it's you know seven minutes long and kind of depressing yeah it probably <laughs> it probably needed some editing to be a hit i love that song very very much I think it, it it's very powerful. I think it 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 it, it has a great sense of uh, theatricality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I it's it's like it we we talked about this on the episode. Very much, it's setting the stage for this world of the Diamond Dogs, and I think it does such a great job at that. Of course, do you need a stage setter as a hit single? I don't know if the you do. But, yeah, I mean, a little editing might have helped there. I mean, 1984 would have been a great hit single. I think it would have been. It would have like. It pre- sounds like the time. It, pre- it, yeah. it prefigures his his move to soul music and, and young Americans. It would have been the right thing. Um, even rock and roll with me, which, as I said, was not my favorite song when I started, but um, it really grew on me as I as I thought about it more. Um, would have been a. It kind of. It, it, it's a. It's a pretty swinging pop song. Um, Diamond Dogs just wasn't, uh, and, and it it. You know, felt like a lit balloon on the charts, um, at least in the U.S. And it's important to know that, 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 that Diamond Dogs was Bowie's attempt to reach the U.S. audience, right? He'd been, he'd become, been this huge star in, in the U.K., but he just, the, the Ziggy Stardust tour and the Aladdin Sane tour, which kind of flowed into one another, um, did not fill stadiums in the U.S., um, did not fill the venues in the U.S. at all, and he had not broken through to the top 40 at all. Um, with any songs, um, and so he wanted to, and he 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 and his management team tried to pitch Diamond Dogs as this, you know, thing that was addressed to, the, to an American audience. They put up a build a giant billboard of Bowie in Times Square. They did TV ads, which you can Google and find. They're kind of fun because um, he looks really coked out, but um, and <laughs> um, and that. Didn't, it did okay. The album did okay in the U.S., but um, did not make him a star. That was that was fame that did that a year later. Well, that but that goes to show that you know you can't force something like that unless you're really unless your management company and your artist is extremely shrewd and can really figure the public out. It's tough to force that. But Diamond Dogs was an important stepping stone because the path of young Americans, Diamond Dogs, is critical. Totally right? from the album to the tour that like in the middle of the tour kind of mutated and mm-hmm. became more 
if I, if I understand correctly, more soul based. Yeah. Well, um, he took, I mean, he took a few weeks off the tour um, and went to Philadelphia and wrote and recorded most of young Americans in the middle of the tour. And he was just so prolific at the time that he could just, you know, crank out a whole other album while he was on tour for, for, for a different album. Um, and he, you know, he went to Philadelphia, got these great musicians like Luther Vandross to play with him and sing with him um, and John Lennon for that matter. Uh, and so he'd lost interest in, in the whole Diamond Dogs thing six months after after starting it. Um, that sounds like his, uh, his, that sounds like his pattern. Yeah, yeah, you. short attention span. <laughs> right. Um, one, one thing, I, Eric, oh, yeah, yeah, go, go see. Eric, before, hold that thought, hold that thought. Uh, Glenn, something, I, I actually, we haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk to people that were around some of these albums first came out. Uh, we were we're I get to um, the old man now. <laughs> uh, we're a little bit younger than you not yeah, much yeah. we're all born in like 80 81 Six. but <laughs> so as a fan in the 70s though i i have always wondered about this young americans was such a like awesome uh curveball mm -hmm. uh, so you were a david bowie fan when young americans when young americans came out correct yeah yes what did you did what did you think when you first heard that album which was uh, just a complete departure from rock and roll I mean, every Bowie album was a complete departure, right? And that was the that was what was crazy about being a fan in the seventies was that you would buy the album and come home, and it didn't sound like any come home and play it, and and it didn't sound like the one before it. Um, that was a pretty major break, no no doubt. Um, I, I I think I'd probably heard Fame before I got the album, um, so I had a sense that there was something funky going on there. Um, and at the same time, I was I. Just because of some friends, I was listening. I started listening to Parliament Funkadelic and some other funk tunes. Um, plus, there was AM radio, and the th thing about AM radio and the, and the there was no FM yet, right, um, or barely any. So AM radio played, um, you know, played black and white hits both. So Bo and Bowie became a hit on black radio um, with Fame and Young Americans. And uh, so there was a kind of a bridge there, even though the sound was, you're exactly right, a complete shock. Um, it fit with this, the music of the time. Um, and it was the Philadelphia sound was, it had all the top hits. And so it was, it was just him moving on, you know, within, yeah, what did he do the next album? He had, uh, he did uh, Station to Station, which was this Germanic, cold, completely just except for Golden Ears, was a, was totally unfunky, um, and uh, so he was constantly. And then he did the Berlin album, so everything was you know he was just constantly changing, and that's what you know, if, the, if you were a fan, you just wanted to try to keep up and figure out what he was doing. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I know we're all big Young Americans fans here. It's hard not to be, and I yeah. just try to put myself in the mindset of a just if you're if you're getting about an album a year from this guy and up to this point he's been you know fairly on the more rock and roll to the glam to with peppers of some 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 r&b in there um i just i think young americans is an awesome awesome move um eric what were you gonna say Sorry. oh yeah no i was just i'm just kind of curious about a little bit more on on glenn's uh, journey here because you mentioned that you did your your dissertation or thesis or something on Blade Runner. That was my undergraduate uh, undergraduate thesis. Yeah. Right, right, right. And then, and then, uh, you know, Diamond Dogs clearly a, a Bowie album you care a lot about. Uh, is there is there a dystopian uh, theme to a lot of your uh, <laughs> your professional uh, interests? Well, um, so. All the way grad school, through grad school, um, for partway through grad school, my intention was to write a dissertation and to become a scholar of 1970s dystopian writing. Uh, and I was really it just a, just a whole set of different authors like Philip K. Dick and and Sam Delaney and, uh, and others were going to be my dis and then dissertation and then for reasons for reasons that uh, probably don't relate to this podcast, uh, I got pulled back into the 19th century. And, and I had an advisor who really advised me to um, not deal with pop fiction in the 1970s, but to focus on uh, popular fiction in the, in the 1850s, um, but uh, not, you know, not the major canonical authors. But, uh, but it just pulled me away from that. So I had, but I had this very deep and long-standing interest 
that went away for a couple of decades and then right. uh, and then just came back for this. Did, do you think do you think that that uh, do you did you feel at the time when Diamond Dogs came out that that was just just absolutely tickling that particular fancy of yours? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 I probably think that uh, when Diamond Dogs came out that it created that fancy of mine. Um, okay. it, was, it, was, okay. it was it was it was I mean, you know, City Stardust is kind of a dystopian album too. It's a lot happier in its sound, but I mean, it's about a guy who gets who comes from outer space, becomes a rock star, and gets torn apart by his fans. Right? Um, it's not exactly, yeah. It ends with it ends with rock and roll suicide. This is not a happy ending. Right? Um, well, and also, you know, whenever I listen here, sometimes I'm like, five years sounds like I'm living it right now. Well, yeah. Yes, uh, it does seem like whatever, it's it's a, whatever that means. It is a very appropriate song for the present. I doubt. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, I guess if you had an opportunity to do another 33 and a third or, or any book on, on Bowie and on a Bowie album, you said Ziggy already. Are there any other ones that you like, even if it's not your favorite album, you just love the story behind it yeah. um, enough to dig into? So I, 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 I really was for a little while deciding between Ziggy and Diamond Dogs. And then I just realized I didn't have much to say about Ziggy. I mean, I love it. Um, it's just a great album, but I think everything everything I'd want to say has already been said. Um, but the other album that that when it came out completely blew me away was Scary Monsters. Oh my God! Friend of the show. <laughs> Friend of the show. Land. Yeah. No. Uh, we were just talking last night uh, on the final episode that everybody's going to hear. Yeah. This uh, uh, this this interview will come out before that episode, so no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. Okay. No spoilers. Well, <laughs> all right. No spoilers. But I'll just say this much: I feel the Scary Monsters is uh the quality of that record is not appreciated enough amongst bowie fans uh i just what an album yeah i can uh, writing a book on that between uh the quality of the the music but also there's a lot of good stories about how they recorded that one working together at that record plant with bruce springsteen next door and everything but mm -hmm. yeah go yeah scary monsters good choice and the, uh, the um, speaking of uh, speaking of Chris O'Leary, who does that pushing ahead of the dame site, he had he just recently published this great um, piece about uh, the recording of the Ashes to Ashes video. Very worth reading. Um, oh yeah, 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 I read. I did. I love. Yeah. that. that was, it's, a, that was it's, a, it's a it's a great story. Yeah, he's a, he's a great writer. Well, what uh, you know, briefly, in case you do want to still write the book, <laughs> what about Scary Monsters makes you want to write a book about it? Well, some of I mean the. Part of the problem, uh, first of all, they won't write, let you write more than one thirty-three and a third. I'm pretty sure, but um, part of the problem is that, that rule. It's <laughs> a, a strange rule. What if, think, what if I, yours is the bestseller? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe they'd make an exception. I don't know, but um, you know, partly is that it's another album about fascism, right? And that's and and where authoritarianism and it's got fashion and it's got all this. Uh, it's it's, all, it's got scary monsters and super creeps. It's got it's so many. It's so it's what it's his real thought about and rethinking of the way in which he'd gotten taken up by fascists, which which did happen to Bowie briefly in the in the seventies. Um, and it has that line in both the first and last song to be insulted by these fascists is so degrading. Yeah, um, that's a great. The way he delivers that on the on the uh, the second version, the last track is wonderful gives me chills and i and i i i have a vivid memory of like, i was living in providence rhode island at the time when i i drove I, I took the train up to boston and for some reason while i was in boston i learned that the bowie album was out and i went to a record store and bought it and all i could do on the train of course vinyl album no portable anything so <laughs> these were the days um so all i could do is sit there and read the lyric sheet over and over again and i got chills just reading the lyrics of that album then the sound of it is so it's really abrasive i just listened to it again last week and it's it's really harsh the sound of that album um but uh but it fits so well and the guitar work on it by fripp by baloo is really amazing mm -hmm. it's just yeah I, we're not talking about that album, but, but I, I do no. I, I do actually have a uh, your book had definitely sparked a, a little train of thought for me when you got to the you definitely have a great couple pages on the on the fascism ideations yes that kind of started here and at one point you say you know he the problem was it was why it was irresponsible was he would say these things without any negative judgment about fascists and i completely i completely agree with you 
he was playing a character, but it's super insensitive <laughs> to play yeah. that character without any, um, you know, without any negative judgments about how that's affected history. Yeah. But um, one thing I thought about was like, uh, and if it started, if it started in Diamond Dogs, I mean, it's clear that this is where this is this through through Berlin uh, until Berlin at least he was lost and probably what from what i've read self like he's like like his self self-loathing came out as that thin white duke fascist this this guy that mm -hmm. rapes and pillages and bounces from town to town and is just all about pure conquering and uh while you're right he didn't do the responsible thing which was say yeah i'm telling a story about this awful character he just played it straight uh, mm -hmm. which which was insensitive in history looking back on it you can tell there was no hero. That Thin White Duke was no hero. It was it was his his complete like self loathing. Uh, I don't know personified. At least that's what I thought. And I'm not making apologies or anything. I just that was just a thought I had. No, I think that's I think that's right. I think it was self loathing. I think it was self. I don't know negation. He was really trying to undo himself um, from from Diamond Dogs on, the, the, the make the self disappear in a strange kind of way. And um, I think that's what happens at the end of Diamond Dogs with the chant of the ever circling felt so the little family as the individual goes away. Um, and it's, 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 you know, he's continually exploring that question of what happens if you have a self, if you're, if you don't have an identity anymore. Um, and his, he disappeared into the thin white duke in a way that clearly scared him. Um, and he talked uh -huh. later about how, I mean, Partly he talks about not remembering that e that whole year, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> but partly he talks about how that character was a nasty fellow and, uh, and a nasty piece of work. I think is his phrase. Um, right. And but I think you know, but I think he then decided to think about fascism in a less I don't know fanboy kind of way because um, he I mean, and 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 to think about it really critically. And so all of his interest in uh, in Brecht was a uh, anti-fascist interest, right? He did the, he did Brecht's Ball uh, in <laughs> 81. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he, no, and we he, covered that one. Oh, you did? Oh, I, have, I, missed, I haven't yeah. heard that episode yet. No, we, uh, we, we fold, I think we folded it into the Let's Dance, if I, uh, uh, okay. or the, or the, the Let's Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, uh, you know, we had, we had grand aspirations on this podcast to cover <laughs> every bit of minutia of David Bowie. And that included, you know, rewatching all the movies he was in and everything. And we quickly, we stuck, we, we still, every recording I think we touched on, but, uh, well, he was a renaissance man, so that, uh, that, that, that we had to trim back some of that stuff. He did, he as did. As far as ball goes, I think that was, yeah, briefly Eric might have talked about it for 10 minutes, and that was, uh, that was something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he was really. Yeah, somehow we did an entire bonus episode about Cool World, though, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I missed that one, too, I'm afraid, but. <laughs> Yes, I got, I got some catching up to do. Well, I, I have a, a, another question or two that's kind of out of the scope of Bowie, but um, Steve, you have anything else Diamond Dogs or Bowie related for uh, for Glenn? No, we kind of we kind of covered it all. I mean, yeah. Though actually, in regards to uh, Eric, you're going to edit this one. Have fun. Yeah. Just this is this is a really direct question. How do you feel about the song Dodo? Which uh, <laughs> I, I I actually it kind of has a warm place in my heart. I don't know. It grew on me. It's a it's a weird one. Yeah, it's a strange song, and I I, I cut out. I <laughs> so I wrote I, the, the book I wrote the draft I wrote originally was over twice as long as the book ended up being, and they laughed at the idea that they would publish something that big because they're small books. The three they're supposed to be a quick read. Um, but so I cut out anything I had to say about Dodo. Um, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a great kind of piano and drum riff. I think it's got some great lines in it. Um, and I don't think it's quite realized as a song. Um, I, I don't, I like the, I love, I like the uh, verses way better than the chorus. The dodo, no, no rhyme just gets on my nerves eventually. This is, you'll, you'll probably disagree with me. But uh, that, 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 the uh, saying that over and over again, just, just grates on me. Um, whereas kind of, the kind of cool to do the live uh, the live the live connection to it though when they when they go from eighty four to Dodo right yeah when it's embedded in nineteen eighty four it starts feeling like it's maybe a uh, it's it's part of a song about surveillance it's part of a general theme about surveillance and paranoia and uh, and they're going to turn you in um, all those lines actually kind of fit there whereas as a song on its own. Um, 
I'm not with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge fan of it. <laughs> Better than 1984. Uh, I think it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So if you um, had a chance to do this treatment, not necessarily 33 to third or whatever, but if you give this treatment to another artist or another album, just list off. I mean, we just we love we love uh, hearing what people dig. Like, what would be some other things you would you would love to dig into? Oh, I mean, uh, I could follow your podcast and do the Iggy Pop stuff, but uh, I'd also go for Lou Reed. I had a, I, I, I have an article in the back of my head that's about the the Lou Reed David Bowie connection. Um, but uh, going going somewhere else, the other place, the other person I'd go to was Elvis Costello. Um, it's probably oh, cool. the other, probably the other person who. I've been a fan of nonstop, and there's a couple of albums in the last ten years I have only listened to once. But uh, I, I have to say, uh, but, he's a huge blind spot for me. I really? like him when I hear him. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. It, it, if I, if you were to speak to someone that thinks they know a lot about music, but they still have so much to learn, hmm. where would Elvis Costello? Where would you begin? Oh, I'd begin at the beginning. <laughs> um, maybe it's maybe I'm biased here, but I think that the, you know, hearing the hear, hearing the albums right in order for a while is just an amazing thing. Um, so the, those first five albums where there's barely a dud, um, and that and they came out every he put out an album every six months for I think for I think four years. Um, wow. He was incredible, wow. and some of those albums had twenty songs on them. He was so prolific, um, and then he would put out an album of his B, and then th then he would put an album out an album of his B sides <laughs> that, wow. that had been producing at the same time. He was incredibly prolific, um, lyrically just brilliant, and just gets keeps getting better and better as a singer. And he had a you know, the attractions were a really tight band, and then he he he, uh, he, he brought together other bands around him over the years too. Um, so um, I think I'd go in order. And then uh, I, I am a, I, Prince was such a huge influence on me in the 70s or late 70s, 79 to 84 or five or later probably, um, that I could, I could easily imagine doing a, it probably, it would probably, it wouldn't be a single album, Prince book, but doing Prince, um, some selective songs would be, would be oh, yeah. right about it. Oh. Yeah, I've always, I've always, uh, I've always liked Prince, and then I'm sure, like many other people, after he passed away, I started appreciating him more. Yeah. And uh, over the last like year, over the last year, even for some reason, he ticked up more, and I've listened to quite a bit more of his work. And I just, yeah, the feel like the the guy was otherworldly is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, just just like listening to his guitar work. Um, it's just it was such yeah you know, I don't know if you've seen that clip of him playing on the at the Gram Grammys or Hall of Fame I think yeah uh, but the the, the, the while my guitar gently weeps yeah and it, yeah uh, sure sure the famous moment is him throwing his guitar in the air and it never comes down which is completely mysterious but um but the guitar solo he does he just walks on and does this guitar solo it's just just mind blowingly good yeah and you've got you've got like Tom Petty you've got like the guy from ELO you've got a few other people yeah. there I think yeah none of them are slouches um, on the guitar. <laughs> No, and they're all. I think they all look as excited that he's there and are blown away by what he's doing yeah. as the audience is. Exactly, it's, it's really fun. Yeah. yeah, and he did that a lot. And it's you know, he was he his his first album was a real guitar rock album before he before he became the poor funk star that he did. And uh, so his his guitar work was always astonishing. Um, Patty Smith. I don't know. I could do I could do a lot of <laughs> I could do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. this be good. All right. Well, uh, is that um, so? Is this your first book that you've written? Uh, it's it, my it's my first non fully academic book. I mean, I wrote I wrote a book uh, called Public Sentiments about nineteenth century American literature and sentimentality, and I've edited a couple of books about the, in the nineteenth century. And I do this I did this textbook that is widely taught called Keywords for American Cultural Studies. Um, I'm actually proofreading our third edition of that. So I've published a few books, um, but this, nice. is the, this is the only one that matters to a David Bowie fan. <laughs> <laughs> sure, well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the academic approach, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I definitely got a lot out of this book. So, um, and if anything, things that maybe used to frustrate me about Diamond Dogs, actually, I think I might 
It might they may intrigue me now after after reading some of the stuff you said. Uh, so I like don't know. What? Like yeah. what? I mean, let me interview well, just, you. Like what? <laughs> yo, Joe. Well, like like specifically those the 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 way that it starts as a concept album and ends as a concept album, but about a, but about a completely different dystopia, and then everything in the middle is 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 different. The the way and 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 only because I would do the exact same thing. Yet you did it better than me when we reviewed Diamond Dogs was connecting finding some way to connect it to dystopia like you were able to do what i couldn't do <laughs> i guess i uh, i respect that big time <laughs> well so, what, uh, one thing yeah, one, so. one thing that it was really interesting to go back and read 1984 which i had not read since like high school when everybody read it uh when we all got assigned to read it or whatever and it you know it's actually a post-nuclear dystopia there's been a nuclear war and there's wastelands all around the cities. It mostly takes place in the city. You don't see the wastelands, but that's what, it's not that different from the world of diamond dogs. Um, it's just, that's not what they focus on. Right. I didn't remember, I didn't remember that at all. Um, and that was, that was interesting when I reread the book that, like, Oh, it actually does fit. Right. Yeah. So I mean, anyway, they're, 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 they're in half dog, half men running around in 1984. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe that that particular city was under, you know, was cleaned up because they were under this this uh, fascist rule. But if you went over to a town that was still destroyed, you'd, you'd have your dogmen running around. You know, <laughs> maybe a little a little west on the map. Sure, sure, I like it. <laughs> Halloween Jack was in the next town over. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes my yeah that that so, that soothes my brain. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, so, anyways, thank you for that, and I think it'll that has enhanced my appreciation of the album. So and. Um, Despite Steve's efforts, it was your book, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to do it. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and being one of our uh, our, our our final uh, buttons on the whole David Bowie experience. It's uh, it's, it's nice to to get a scholar in here at the, at the end of this project, someone that actually knows what they're talking about, <laughs> as opposed to whatever whatever Eric's doing half the time. So thank you. Uh, it's been it's it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I, I look forward to figuring hearing hearing how you figure out how to edit this. So. <laughs> uh, it's just just ch cutting it. It's it's basically the Burroughs method on GarageBand. It's fine. It's okay. Fine. Okay. Cut cut move slide. It'll be it's all good. Since I got to I've got to start recording uh, re recording videos and soundtracks to for my students because I'm teaching remotely for the first time in my life. So uh, yeah. it's all, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, learning, we, I'll be learning from you. you. We wish you, we wish you luck in this uh, brand new frontier that we're all in, in one way or another. Yeah, thank you, same to you. All right. All right. So we have to go, right. go out and pick up 33 and a thirds, Diamond Dogs by Glenn Hendler, immediately. <laughs>